show on climate change. Brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. We're not going to continue to to demand from a system that continuously victimizes us and that we're going to, to, to circle the ranks and protect ourselves and start building our own parallel systems within this economy that, you know, that's set up to to um to continue to victimize us those are the questions that i think remain um, to be to be answered for sure this week's guest is jackie patterson the director of the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Program. And ever since 2007, she has served as the coordinator and co-founder of Women of Color United. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, first and foremost, I am so excited for this conversation today because I have someone who I respect so much, um, the amazing Jackie Patterson, the director of the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Program. My sister Jackie, how are you? I am, you know, doing as well as one can under the circumstances, just trying to stay deep in my purpose. And I'm Definitely honored to be here with you, who I admire so deeply as well. So that makes it a better day. Thank you. Yeah, well, let's get into that. I mean, so um, what are your thoughts about all that's going on right now? Good question. Yeah, there's so much going on right now. I mean, of course, with the COVID-19, it was just kind of a long period of, of deep grief and and anger at having been able to predict what would unfold because it's the same pattern of disproportionate impact that always unfolds with any disaster. And um, and then just frustration that we continue to be at this point because we failed to address the systemic inequities that lead to the vulnerabilities that the same folks face in all disasters. Um, and And then as... As the kind of visibilization, I, I said I'm going to petition Webster to make this a word um, of um, <laughs> of the lived realities that we all know every day, all day. That finally the world is somewhat waking up to in this kind of stark situation we find ourselves with, with the killing of Mr. Floyd. That has also been question of, oh, you know, is this going to be another flashpoint that fades? And then we just go back because people are having fatigue and their guilt around the situation. And at the same time, starting to feel some glimmers of of a possible transformation as I watch it continue and sustain. And, and as I watch here, the conversations around real systems change that are being advanced. Um, and it's not, I'll just uh, wrap that part by saying it's not so much, it's a combination of, you know, what other folks are starting to see, but also what we ourselves are starting to imagine in a way that 
has been suppressed from having been brought over, you know, to this country as cargo and having been dehumanized consistently over time. So a concern before about like that, that kind of suppressing our imagination. And so we, we often are kind of fighting against something and not necessarily having the hope to fight for not just what we need, but what we want. And so I feel like now there is maybe a little bit more of an opening of, of imagination space possibilities and, and the impetus to make those demands. <laughs> well, man, you know, for those who are just tuning in here, I'm talking to my dear friend and sister, Jackie Patterson, and uh, we just kind of jumped into it. We have a lot to cover in this conversation. So if you're just tuning in here, a part of our normal dialogue of just kind of getting into it. Jackie, what you just said there kind of touched me um, because I know we have been saying even before the 21st century version of Black Lives Matters, um, we've been saying that for literally since we got here for 401 years. But in this new kind of moment of Black Lives Matter, is it as important for those to hear us saying it as it is as important for us to hear ourselves saying that? Right. Almost re- reaffirm that mm. we matter. Exactly. That's exactly it. Because because the word matter um, is an interesting one because on one hand, one can see it as a fairly low bar. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, because, uh, yeah, to matter is interesting. Um, someone actually sent me something about about uh, how how we, you know, in our enslaved state built, they were sending me kind of a list of the things that we built and kind of using that to affirm the notion that we matter. And I was like, Huh. <laughs> you know, like that wouldn't necessarily have been what I would like, even though that matters that we we built this country and that, you know, the fact that we are so behind in wealth and all these indicators is 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 a reflection of, of that or a manifestation of that. But to say that because we built, that's why we matter, like it's a, a justification for us mattering. I, th- I thought we still aren't where we need to be. You know what I mean? In terms of. No, no, no. Yeah. That, 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 that's it's something that's it's kind of crazy because, I mean, I think it's we, we are kind of just discovering how important it is for us to, from a psychological standpoint, for us to just make sure that not only are we receiving um, that justice, so to speak, but we also just are just making sure that we haven't forgot what it means to us um, in that. But before I get on to that, let me just say this. So we have a lot of folks, and we about to get, we about to get it. We have a lot of folks <laughs> who are discovering the interconnection, obviously, between racial justice and climate justice right now. Mm. And you have been making these connections for decades. Um, but more importantly, I think that most folks kind of see you in this role of where you are now, right? They come in, they know you as Jackie Patterson for the past few years as this activist. But, you know, obviously you're, you're, you know, you from your family and you got your own upbringing. So 
way before you became the activist, Jackie Patterson, who is Jackie Patterson? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I was uh, I was born on the south side of Chicago. My dad was an immigrant to this country from Jamaica, and my mom was an immigrant to Chicago from Mississippi, um, who came up through the Great Migration, <laughs> the not so great migration. But uh, but yeah, so I grew up in. Um, the embattled territories between the El Rookins and the Black Peastone Nation. Just grew up in that kind of gangland. That was just the norm for us, um, just our daily reality there. I grew up with a brother, an older brother, who as early as I was really thinking who I came to see as, at first I was actually, I actually saw my parents as favoring him. And then over time, I realized how much they felt like they needed to protect him. And that was an early reality that went from like, why are they favoring him to why do they feel like they need to put so much time and emotion and effort into protecting him and feeling like his life is at threat. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, one of my earliest understandings of of what it means to be a black and what it means to particularly be a black male in this society. Um, he was he started to run early on and my and he would you know, he was a runner. He ran marathons and so forth. And so my parents were always concerned about him running in any other running in general because of, you know, what we've, what we've seen today, you know, that was back then, you know, um, in terms of Ahmad, Ahmad Aubrey playing, paying the price of fitness with his very life. And so they were concerned that he, you know, prophetically concerned, <laughs> you know, unfortunately given the realities there, not only in our neighborhood, but also as he ran in other neighborhoods as a, as a, black boy in other people's neighborhoods. So this was our, yeah, this is our childhood. And then fast forward, I went into um, special education and we were, we were very much a church folks. So we, I was raised in a Lutheran church and was always in vacation Bible school, was always in Sunday school, uh, choir practice. So like three days a week, we were in church in one way or another. So that was very much a part of our childhood. And then I went to Lutheran high school, um, elementary school, Lutheran high school. So that was definitely my upbringing there as well. Elementary school was largely African-American. High school was mixed, um, largely white and African-American. And I remember some of the classes where one person, whose name I still remember, but I won't say, um, talking, somehow we ended up talking about racism. She was talking about Mexican people in this way that the teach. I remember the teacher not, not calling her on it and thinking, doesn't seem like this is a good, you know? Um, and yeah. And so again, some of those early understandings, but anyway, fast forward to, to from there, special education, ended up going into Peace Corps into Jamaica, where my dad was from, um, went from there to, to doing work around public health and did international women's rights work in sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean. And it was from there that I actually uh, started to do work around violence against women and climate change. And that's what led me to um, to joining the NAACP as I reached out to them about a project I was doing on 
the intersection of race, gender, and climate change. And one thing led to another, and here I am. <laughs> so I know that was No, that's powerful. That's actually... So we, so we share a, an, a common background. And, you know, your dad is from Jamaica. Uh, my parents are both from Trinidad. I guess my question to you is, do you think having that international slash Caribbean background cause you to see America differently? Or did it kind of cause you to have a kind of a patriotic schizophrenia? It's a very good question. Yeah, I think maybe both. Yeah, because my dad never really talked about race and racism and so forth in the way that my mom did. Um, and my mom, I mean, we actually used to joke about being banned from all the restaurants in, uh, in, uh, in Chicago because she would get, we would just, it was just a vivid memory of her always getting into these battles with various restaurateurs and, um, and um, because she would be perceiving a different treatment and, and that happened all the time. And also in stores, we also would joke about being banned from stores as well because she would, she would see folks and see them as following us. And she would kind of be laying people out. She was forever writing letters to the CEOs. And so that was like, that was again, as, as early as I can remember my dad, however, yeah, he just didn't, he, he was a grateful to be in the United States and grateful to be able to, to have a livelihood that allowed him to not only provide for his family, but also to provide, to send money back to Jamaica. And he was a part of the union. He was a big, big union believer in terms of the, the rights of the people that were protected by the unions. But he, and he was always very respectful in that way that older Jamaicans, you know, so he was always referring to Mr. So-and-so and so, you know, the bosses at work. And so just had much more of, a, I don't know, obedient and um, grateful. He was, yeah, kind of way of being. And that contrast, that contrast was interesting because he in general seemed happier. My mom kind of was angry a lot. And, and but yeah, you would think that that would make us, make me gravitate more towards you know, what would be happy anyway, but it did kind of result in a bit of a schizophrenia, I would say, because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you, uh, still plug on your Caribbean roots, I guess. I know you, I know you love Bob Marley as we kind of like pivot here a little bit. What are some of his words or songs that keep you motivated, that keep the fire burning during this time? So one, we actually recently as NWCP had a, a black male town hall meeting and during the town hall meeting, one of the comments that I think T.I. made, made me post on in the comments the uh, words from originally from Marcus Garvey, but uh, more recently from Bob, Bob Marley made them popular, emancipate yourself from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our minds. And one of my colleagues pushed back because he read that as kind of, you know, me encouraging more of a like a bootstrap kind of thing. Like it's only us who are oppressing ourselves or something. But I was saying, no, it's really quite the opposite. And it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning of our conversation here, that um, we have to demand what we want as opposed to just what we think we might be able to get. Um, and, and that's what I feel like has been beaten, suppressed, 
murdered out of so many um, people who are literally just trying to get by to just to, to spend another day on this earth. And so it's more of us like really me, me trying to say it would be great for us to really get to a place where we do not only see the possibilities, but that we see those possibilities as something to strive for, not just something to dream about. No, 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 no. I mean, that that's something that's so, I mean, what do you think that's, that striving leads to? I think that striving, I think that if you can see it, I mean, it's just like, um, you know, without vision, the people perish because if you can see it and if you can figure out the pathway, you know, then you, then you, you're motivated to figure out the pathway to get there. If you can see it and actually feel like it's a possibility, because I mean, even now the work that we're doing in the environmental and climate justice program is while we're trying to change the system so that, you know, we, we eliminate, we, we advance moratoriums on, on shutoffs and that kind of uh, like shutoff of electricity. But at the same time, we're also saying we don't have to wait for, you know, we don't have to sit here and pray for somebody not to shut off our electricity or try to advocate for someone not to show. We can, we can grow our own electricity. We can generate our own electricity, own that and have control over our access to, to this, you know, essential resource. And so really, you know, visioning what we want and, and then actually going after it. <laughs> That's what I meant in terms of striving. Yeah. And then there was so many more examples. I mean, with food, you know, we, we talk about our food insecurity and being in communities that are, you know, uh, so folks don't like the term food desert because it implies, because deserts are natural. So communities that, where there's food insecurity or food apartheid, as some folks say. So similarly, yes, we can continue to advocate for groceries, grocery stores and so forth. And we definitely should. And at the same time, we we need to strive in a different take a different path of you know if we're going to continue beat our beating our heads against a door that's closed let's start growing our own food and setting up our own systems so that so that someone else's power doesn't block us from what we want and need wow wow powerful powerful jackie and i mean i know recently you you just gave your your testimony mm-hmm. um which you do actually quite a lot but you gave your testimony before the subcommittee on environment and climate change uh, for the committee on energy and commerce. And you said this, you made this very, I think very important point. And the point you made was the systemic racism causing communities to be more vulnerable to COVID-19 is the exact same systemic racism causing environmental injustices. And so, you know, at NOCP, you have, we have, have the hashtag, we are done dying, um, is the recent hashtag that is used by the NWCP. So what does that hashtag represent? How is it being used to mobilize? And specifically, what do you mean, this straight up, what do you mean straight up by saying that the same racism um, causing our communities to be vulnerable to one plague, COVID-19, is the exact same racism causing us the same, in essence, problems with the environment for our communities. Yeah, so basically, I mean, we have a system that's predicated 
a capitalist economy is predicated on there having to be winners and there having to be losers. And who is the winners and who are the who are the winners and who are the lo- losers is divided by race, often by gender, often by class and so forth. But as it relates to racism, you know, it's the very same structure that says that corporatocracy rules that has made uh, has made us not have the enough uh, regulations as it exists for clean air, clean water, and so forth. It's made places like in Alaska, where the Red Dog Mine has violated the clean water standards six hundred times, but yet they're allowed to operate. Um, where we, as a people, have you know kind of these three times you're out kind of rules as it relates to our criminalization and incarceration, and so we, um, and so we 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 have very different rules uh, for very different actors in this society, and to even call a company an actor you know, uh, implies a a personhood that has unfortunately been bestowed upon them by our, um, by the passing of Citizens United. And so we have this whole situation where the rights of corporations are overcoming the rights of people and unfortunately black people more so. And so when we have African-Americans more likely to live in counties in violation of air pollution standards, more likely to live in, in cancer clusters, more likely to be separated from food resources, more likely to have contaminated water, one, more likely to have indoor air pollution. At the, at the climate talks in 2015 in Paris, we as the NAACP youth delegation, along with the historically Black college and university delegation led by Dr. Bullard and Dr. Um, Wright um, did a die-in because, and um, it, it's part because to say that just the same as we're being murdered in the streets, we're also dying a death of a thousand cuts from being polluted in our lungs. And so these are, and so these very kind of same underpinnings of our loss of life, again, with the we're, we're done dying, are the same underpinnings in terms of COVID-19 in that our separation from foods that means that we have the types of diets that are more likely to leave us in, and our separation from food, first off, with the historic uh, roots from redlining, historic redlining to modern day redlining. People think that's a thing of the past, but even though we have more policies around it, the extent to which they're monitoring and enforced has a lot of variation. So when we're separated from foods and therefore more likely to have diabetes, hypertension, and um, and heart disease that leave us more vulnerable to COVID-19, when we know that our lungs are weaker because we're under the constant assault of near roadway air pollution, incinerators, uh, coal-fired power plants, oil and gas refineries, all of which are disproportionately located in our communities. And when COVID comes in and attacks the lungs specifically, we're already we're already on a path to death. And that then and then COVID just kind of you know is the final straw. And so there's so many examples where. And then of course we know the labor laws again pushed back on by corporatocracy in terms of having the, the proper labor laws that would allow us to be able to as as essential workers who don't have the, the luxury of being able to work from home, we don't have the types of protections that we need, whether we're the 76,000 coal miners who have died of black lung disease while the National Mining Association fought against their protection, or whether we're the, the bus, bus driver 
who is just trying to earn for their family and might lose their job if they don't go out there and do that, who's not given the proper protection at the beginning of COVID-19. And so hopefully that kind of gives you a best sense of uh, the types of illustrative ways that racism has led to our demise in both situations and why the hashtag we're done dying is so so timeless for us. It, it, it does. But I guess I just want to just, I mean, for me, you know, the NAACP is the standard bearer for our community on civil rights and has been around for over a hundred years, um, has seen literally, you know, our community go through from Jim Crow um, to lynching to from Emmett Till to George Floyd, to uh, Breonna Taylor, you name it. Obviously, the NWCP has been, has seen this this history and been a part of it. Um, they fought, obviously, in the streets. They fought, obviously, in the suites, fought in the courtrooms. They've been in the churches. So I, I say this to you, being NWCP has seen this, obviously, seen it way beyond our lives and Preferably, we'll see it after we're gone. But the reason I bring that up is this. The hashtag, uh, we are done dying, is powerful. I'm, I'm with it. I'm, all, I'm clear that that's, that needs to happen. <laughs> we are done dying. But the thing is this, though. If I had somebody who came to me who was in a relationship, and they were in an abusive relationship, and they says, Rev, I am done being beaten. I am done being beaten. And I told that person to go back to that abusive person and to figure it out. When, what is our recourse here? Like, what is it? Because it seems like we're done dying, but we are living with our abuser. We're living with someone who doesn't have any love or doesn't really, we have to say, Things like we matter. Listen, I matter. You know, you know, we're in that kind of relationship with this country where people are in the most powerful position from the president on down who clearly make mockery almost of our existence. When is enough enough? Yeah. If we if we decide in our minds that enough is enough, what does that mean in terms of that? actions that we take um, in terms of going beyond like saying enough is enough. And as you said, then being, being about enough, being enough. And does that mean that we're done, we're going to board the Black Star Liner, as Marcus Garvey said, and, and, and head back to the motherland? Does that mean <laughs> that we are, as I was saying earlier, that we're, we're not going to continue to to demand from a system that continuously victimizes us and that we're going to, to, to circle the ranks and protect ourselves and start building our own parallel systems within this economy that's, you know, that's set up to, to, um, to continue to victimize us. Those are the questions um, that I think remain um, to be, to be answered for sure. Um, does that mean that we really have a concerted effort to build the power to 
to change the entire uh, economy and system of the United States. What is it? What does it mean? I think, yeah, I think those are open questions that I... No, I just, no, I, I just, I mean, it's, it's not easy, right? We're at a point where I think we need to, I think our conversations just need to be that, you know, how, you know, in that process and where are we healthy, both not only physically, but mentally, right? Because I think that takes that mental toll. Um, you know, you wrote an article for Color Lines. So you're not only an activist, but you are a prolific writer as well. And I love, actually, I love Color Lines. So shout out to Color Lines. But you spoke about how centuries, I mean, centuries of racist policies and practices have shaped our environment. An environment I'm meeting uh, the air we breathe, the access to health care that we do or don't have, the food we eat, education, and more. And you said this, quote, layers of harm, generation after generation, alter our bodies at the molecular level. And even the genes we pass on to our children, those harms past and present render us more vulnerable to the, obviously the coronavirus and also to the longer-term crises caused by climate change, end quote. So how are these layers of this almost the genetic, the, the genetics um, that is literally changing our body, making us more vulnerable? And one thing to add to that, the New York Times wrote an article that said that literally that the babies that Black mothers in particular are having are being are being are are at risk. So I just want to add that. So please, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So whether it's the fact that we know that um, one of the things that comes out of these smokestacks that are in our communities is our endocrine disruptors, which and that we also know that that African American women suffer higher maternal mortality rates, and whether it's because of the stressors, the, the micro, meso, and macro stressors that we experience um, based on the double jeopardy of race and gender, or it's the fact that even when we go into the healthcare system, the consistency of quality care is so different for us as Black women. There's just so many ways that we're, that our very health is at threat and by extension, the health of our, our babies. Um, we I spoke to so many women in Baltimore because I was with the Baltimore Felon Infant Mortality Review. And I spoke to women after woman after woman who had lost their babies. And um, they talked about the, the stressors of just their daily lives, their daily lives from, from not being able to have what should again be basic human rights, always being, whether it's threatened with water shutoffs or threatened with electricity shutoffs, we're living in an area that because of, you know, redlining and separation from resources, there were high levels of crime because of this kind of false notion of a quote unquote war on war on drugs that had, had actually made our communities even more um, challenging because of the way it was it played out. And because of uh, these notions of urban 
renewal, which actually is people call it urban removal that kind of concentrates people into just so many factors that, 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 that gets into our, our bones literally because of, um, because of how, you know, we have visceral reactions. I think about the times that I experienced racism, even at a micro level, working in this movement and how, how my heart starts racing in these encounters as I think about what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do. Should I say something this time? Do I, why do I have to say something every time? What's going to be the reaction? What's going to be the fallout? And, and so leading up to it before I say something and then afterwards, it's like, I'm replaying every minute of it and, and, and my heart is racing the entire time. And so what does that do to me? What is that doing to me over time? Not to mention people who, and, and I'm in a relatively privileged position, not to mention someone who doesn't have choices, you know? So yeah, um, from that to, and when we talk about genes in a little more literal sense, the, the fact that Henrietta Lacks's genes were used were taken without her consent or her fam- and her family's consent and used uh, for um, for experimentation and so forth for that that has affected generations to come. But but of course we continue to suffer from lack of quality health care since it hasn't it hasn't benefited us, but it's benefited other people. And so these are the kind of things that um, this this compound to, to to weigh you know to weigh down. Um, our very existence, not to mention the kind of quality of life. Last week, we had Dr. Adrian Hollis on from the Union of Concerned Scientists, and she was phenomenal. And I would ask, I would tell anybody, if you want to hear her or many of the other guests, please go to think100climate.com and you can hear all these uh, fantastic conversations. But when I talked to her, the question I'd asked her simply was, you know, being at a white organization, this was actually part of that conversation with a young um, employee there uh, named Ruth who felt unsafe. And so I, I just asked her, just, you know, point blank. I said, you know, Dr. Hollis, do you feel safe? And she says, um, her answer, you can hear it, definitely go and tune in, was that I feel, she said, I feel sometimes safe. I feel safe, but I don't, it's a question about safe, about being comfortable. So I guess for you and me, we're very unique. You and I are very unique because we actually work for Black organizations doing this work. So I guess my question to you is, do you feel more free doing this work for a Black organization than you would if you were for a white organization or do you feel like something I feel? Do you feel sometimes, because even though we work for a black organization, it's still sometimes a white space. And so you're still guarded. Um, so do you feel safe, Jackie, in this space overall? Yeah, it's an interesting word, safe. Um, I certainly don't feel safe from from assault, verbal assaults. I don't feel safe from even other types of assault as given the uh, visibility as a black organization that is targeted by, um, by, by, by racists out there. And so both in terms of, you know, if you, if you're going, if you're working, walking into a situation 
where there is a chance that you're going to walk out of it with your heart racing from some encounter, then that's not a safe environment, you know? So, uh, definitely, um, definitely there is always that risk and, and, and therefore I am, I'm always feeling that on guardedness, especially as a introvert for sure. And I also feel kind of a mantle of responsibility coming, you know, coming from a black organization, having, you know, really being in a position of, of, uh, of relative power in that I don't feel like anyone can do anything to me in terms of, you know, in terms of my career or my this or my that, you know, so I feel like I, I, so I feel like responsible for saying something or intervening and, and so forth. And as a result, that level of responsibility makes me feel ironically or somewhat paradoxically, um, because it makes me feel like I have to say something. It makes me feel even more on guard because, I have to be vigilant. I have to force myself to say something, even though my instinct would be not to. And then I have to to deal with the fallout from it, whatever it might be, right? And so that's an interesting dynamic in and of itself. And then, yeah, just being a person uh, that's visible with an organization like the NAACP, there is, we've had, you know, Zoom calls where it's not only been Zoom bombing that other folks experience, but targeted where people someone has actually pre-recorded a racist song about the NAACP and played it on our Zoom call. They've written the N-word a zillion times in our Zoom chat. So it's as targeted. It's not just like pranksters. We've had folks with death threats for trying to close coal-fired power plants. And so all of that. Mm. And in that, you know, we both work for people of color, uh, led and, you know, structured organizations being NMCP and being Hip Hop Caucus. And I guess I know that there are different chapters within the organization of the NMCP that still, that takes money from fossil fuel entities, as does for me. We work closer to Hip Hop Caucus with the Congressional Black Caucus. And so we're constantly having this conversation in regards to, you know, what that means. And we're seeing also, even during this moment of Black Lives Matter, how Chevron is literally trying to pit Black people against environmental organizations. So how do we just, I guess, from a solution standpoint, how do we just transition? What's, what's, our, what's our role to get, because there's a reason, a lot of our organizations, because it's the only money they can get sometimes, and they feel it's it, so they have no choice. But how do we just kind of transition that? How do we fix that? How do we Get them not to, or to understand what's at stake with fossil fuel money, or to just literally stop taking it. I think that, I think that one is to, one of the things that we we did was we launched this um, campaign called Don't Believe the Fossil Fuel Hype, where we were working with youth to get them to do parody videos that help <laughs> folks to kind of see with humor, you know, uh, what, um, what folks are doing to manipulate our communities. Um, it's sometimes unbeknownst because it's, it sounds reasonable that, uh, that prices are going to go up or, 
or, you know, here are these jobs that are available. So I'm always kind of pushing back against our white colleagues who want to make it seem like people are just being bought off, like they're just hired hands, as opposed to recognizing the complexities that they failed to give a compelling, a compelling, um, um, understanding of what, you know, what the impacts are of these fossil fuel, um, pollution on our communities. And therefore they've, they've, uh, they've, they, with their dereliction, you know, and their duty to help folks to understand, then other, other, other companies, these companies can be shrewder and telling a story using equity, equity framing about the inequities of, um, of the solar industry. If, if you, if you talk to, you know, a dozen black people and you don't know any of them who have solar or know anyone, uh, they don't know anyone who's gone solar, then of course it's easy to kind of sell this notion that solar is bad for the poor because they're left, you know, stranded on the grid while rich folks go off and buy solar panels and, and then all of a sudden they're getting rebate checks. So that's not, you know, that sounds very regressive. Um, and so it's easy to spin that kind of story if you don't actually take the time and bridge that that gap. And so and there's many examples that are similar. And so and so with that, we, we do have to a, do a better job at, um, at connect. If, if, if we really want to advance the green economy, let's try connecting people that you, you know, to, who are um, who are not connected to the green economy so that people can actually see their material benefits and then they too can become champions of the green economy. And so that's, um, that's one thing. Um, And then, yeah. And then of course, with the economic realities, when you've got, when you've got these wage gaps and wealth gaps that are in, that are exponential, they're not just factors, they're exponential. Um, Then, um, then of course, any, anything that kind of provides jobs is going to be appealing to a black leader who wants to see relief for their communities. And so we, so it's just another reason why the green economy has to be explicit about, and that's why when we're doing our energy um, policies, we're not just uh, pushing for renewable portfolio standards or energy efficiency resource standards. We're pushing for local hire provisions, disadvantaged business enterprise provisions, and rich and uh, fair chance hiring. So we have to, con- like, we can't have one without the other. And we're pushed in and why the policies that have been successful have been the Portland Clean Energy Fund, where it was a coalition of folks who all saw themselves in that piece of legislation. The Illinois Future Energy Jobs Act, where the returning citizens, groups that were representing returning citizens, labor, Black businesses were all involved and they all saw themselves in that legislation. And so, yeah, hopefully that, that kind of gives you a sense. No, no, no. You, no, you, you definitely did. I mean, I think that's, that was very powerful. I guess you, I have, so I have, there's something to that when I came out of that, I definitely want to ask you about. I guess the first thing is about what are your thoughts about the Green New Deal? Mention this is this kind of general question. What are your thoughts about that? I think the Green New Deal conceptually is, um, I mean, I think we need to have legislation that is multi-solving in the way that the Green New Deal is trying to be, you know, that not only talks about, you know, pure energy policies, but also talks about job creation, talks about, you know, minimum livelihoods, talks about, you know, uh, healthcare. I mean, because we've seen even through COVID nineteen how inextricable, you know, whether it's labor policies and labor standards, 
and um, healthcare policies and, and clean and, and um, clean air are all inextricably linked to the resilience that would have protected us from just the contagion of, of COVID-19. You know, if all of those things have been in place, we would not be where we are at stuck in our homes, talking through, you know, <laughs> through our computers all day, every day. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> so, so that's all to say in some ways, the conceptually, the Green New Deal is prophetic and that just that we have to make sure that the details, the, that the, there's no, no loopholes to fall through or details to be left uncovered. Because if we talk about moving away from fossil fuels, then we have to be explicit about what we mean by clean. It can include kind of the illusions of, uh, of clean, like biomass and biofuels and so forth. We have to be very clear about what standards we're talking about. So, and, and no illusions like carbon capture and sequestration, like, oh, okay, well, it's going to keep the carbon out of the atmosphere. So no problem with regard to coal mining that, that, you know, again, kill, has killed 76,000 miners since 1968. So we have to, you know, get real when it comes down to the details. So let me, let me leave with this. Uh, Audre Lord said this. There is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. Um, how, how do we... How do you and we <laughs> um, explain that to those in a movement that sometimes wants to be siloed? They want to break the silo, but they're not understanding all that comes your way. So when you have to deal with pollution, you're also dealing with poverty, you're dealing with the pandemic, you're dealing with police brutality. And you're dealing with just the, the personhood of being a black person. How do you then explain the amount of layers you have to navigate to your white counterparts? Yeah, so in two ways, in a way. So it's interesting because there's one just pragmatic way that I don't necessarily like to use, but I've seen other people use that basically says, you know, if you don't do this, we won't win, you know, and that's, this is very pragmatic. But I, what I don't like about that is similar to the way I didn't like the notion of Black Lives Matter because we built this and that. I don't like like the instrumentalization, like a quid pro quo, you know, if you do this. Yeah. But more like helping folks to see that our that our destinies are linked, that, that if we're not in common purpose, because not because, you know, we don't help someone who, you know, to make sure that they don't get COVID-19 because if we don't, they might infect us, you know, like that. So that, that notion of, um, of intersectionality is not the notion that, uh, we want to advance. We want to, we, we want to see that, uh, that we all do have this, uh, if, if one is free, then no one's oppressed in a, in a much more elemental way than, than, um, than just kind of this, uh, parasitic or, you know, or, or, or not, um, or individualistic, um, way of viewing that. Like it's all, it only matters as it directly relates to me in this kind of, yeah, 
in this way. So, so that's all to say that, so the, the very basic level, that's one thing that's true, that if, if we don't, if we, if we refuse to have multi-solving um, policy design, then we're not going to get everyone on board. And that's true from that level. But the other, the other, the other thing is that if we don't, if we don't kind of solve intersectionally, then one, then, then the integrity of what we're moving forward is, is, is going to be negatively affected because it's not actually whole. So if we, you know, as we, the laws of phys- physics is, uh, you know, everything is kind of impacted by everything else. And that's a law of our, of our ecosystem. It's the law of kind of everything. <laughs> and so, and so if we push forward with a policy around clean energy that doesn't actually deal with the fact that, that folks are going to be losing their jobs in the fossil fuel economy, then that means that the whole system is going to suffer because we're not going to all be able to to afford in the clean energy economy, or we're not going to be able to all thrive in the clean energy economy, which just causes a shock to the whole system. So we have to be thinking holistically and intersectionally because otherwise it, it weakens the entire system. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, Zach, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I mean, I, just, I really just got two more questions and I knew this time. I knew, I knew this time with Zoom passed. I knew with Zoom, I knew. I said, man, when I get Jackie, it's going to be, it's going to be like it's because there's so much to get into. But, um, but I just have really like two more questions, really. Um, the one really is to your work, really. I know that, you know, um, well, my parents are from Trinidad. They came here to Louisiana, which is where I spent a good bit of my life and time. And so, you know, Louisiana is, is my home state for me. Um, and obviously this year marks the 15th commemoration slash anniversary of Hurricane Katrina on August 29th um, of this year. But this also means that the 2020 hurricane season just got started. And I know that the NWCP is encouraging all its branches to establish a community emergency response team, as you call it, CERT, I believe to increase their community's resilience. So how should communities go about establishing a CERT team? And actually, what does it entail? Mm, Okay. Yes, thank you. So I'll be super brief on that. Um, One is folks can go on to, if they even just Google FEMA and CERT training, they can go online and they can do an online um, CERT uh, training and get a certificate from that. And then two is, uh, you know, once we're able to to convene again, if people go to their local fire department, you can find out also online where, who your CERT sponsoring agency is. But um, but but go on and find out who the CERT sponsoring agency is, and they offer regular in person CERT train hands on training, and that's going to be necessary to really become certified as a as a CERT. Cert um, volunteer, and then for us, we have we went and we we did a document called "In the Eye of the Storm," that actually lays out ways that we can then take that information 
and then um, overlay it with the information that we include in the in the eye of the storm to actually be stewards of equity and justice in the context of disaster. So the idea of doing the cert and becoming a volunteer and starting to do some of the trainings that are online is to know the system well enough to make it to, so that we we know what reforms are necessary to make it work for us. Well, this is my last question to you. And actually, I asked this question to Tamika Mallory when she um, did this interview and did this, had this, we had this conversation. She actually was in Minnesota right after the killing of George Floyd. And my question to her, which I'm asking you right now, because Jackie, you are a trailblazer. You are amazing. And as director of the NWCP Environmental and Climate Justice Program, um, you know, people will look you up. They're going to be like, who was that Jacqueline Patterson? And they're going, they're going to be, they're going, they're going to try to see because you're trailblazing in this field. So I actually want you to speak. Right now we're in 2020 um, and it's a very volatile time for us. But I actually want you to speak to 2120, which more likely we won't be here. And I want you to speak to them. I want you literally to speak to that generation of 2120 about now, what would you want them to know? Uh, yeah. First, I would want to apologize for, you know, in advance uh, for anything that um, any um, residual impacts that they might have from our uh, having um, allowed this person to be in office. But um, otherwise, I would want them to guard against any notion of history repeating itself, that for them to really see the abundance of this planet and that, the, and that, it, that it was divinely designed to, for regeneration and that if we don't serve as good stewards of the planet and of each other and recognize the intersectionality and the interconnectedness of all things, that that they might be in the mess that we're in now. <laughs> and so um, I would encourage them to lead with love. I really am being much more explicit about love being at the center of what I do, along with radical, bold actions and demands to get to where we need to be in terms of a, a society that uplifts all rights for all people and lives in armed harmony with the earth. Yeah, that's what I would say in a very small nutshell. Um, I had to write a novel to really <laughs> say more, but and Jackie, um, I know it's very important for people to find you. Where can they find you? How can they find you? And and how can they find NOCP to get involved with the Environmental and Climate Justice Program? Yes. So uh, certainly, if they want to directly reach out to the program, they could reach out to us at ECJP as an environmental and climate justice program, ECJP at naacpnet.org. So ECJP at naacpnet.org. And if they wanted to find us on Twitter, they would look up ECJP underscore NAACP. And uh, my Twitter handle is at Jackie Pat with two T's, J-A-C-Q-U-I-P-A-T-T. And yes, and online, I mean, if you wanted to read about the program, 
although we don't keep it very well up to date. Our website is naacp.org, and then you would just go to programs and scroll down to the Environmental and Climate Justice Program, which is the last one on the list. Yeah, I think those are the, the key coordinates. And of course, there's, there's also our ma- master in, uh, Twitter handle, which is at NAACP. Yeah. And the hashtag, we are yes, done dying. Definitely that. Facts, as we say on Hip Hop Side. Thank you, Jackie, so much. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit the coolest show. where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think 100, think 100, think 100.